Welcome to On the Journey Conversations. I'm your host, Sandy Wisdom Martin. Today's episode is brought to you by the Christian Women's Leadership Center of Women's Missionary Union. Today I visited Dr. Travis Kern's North American Church Planning class at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Travis was kind enough to do an interview for the podcast. He is a delightful and engaging leader. You are going to enjoy hearing from him. Dr. Kearns, I had a great time visiting your class today. Yeah, thank thanks. you for letting me share. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. It really well, means a lot. And thank you for sticking around and let me interview you for yeah. this podcast. Yep. I want to start at the beginning, not the beginning of your life, but at the beginning of somebody else's life. Tell me about your grandmother. <laughs> yeah. So as I mentioned, I may cry a little bit through this. She's a, she was a very special lady to me. As Paul said to Timothy, with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I had two Loises and a Eunice. So both my grandmothers and my mom were very special. But my grandmother you're asking about is a lady named Betty Albertson from North Georgia, from Elbert County, Georgia, where there's more granite than there is dirt in the ground. It's the granite capital of the world. In fact, the high school football stadium is called the Granite Bowl because it's all made out of granite. If you have granite countertops in your home or you have a granite tombstone, it probably came from Elbert County, Georgia. So my grandmother, born and raised in Elbert County, Georgia, born and raised Southern Baptist. In fact, through her side of the family, we've got Southern Baptist roots back to the founding of the convention in 1845. So very, very proud Southern Baptist heritage and probably the proudest woman I've ever met, not only of her WMU group at the Bethel E. Baptist Church in Elbert, Georgia, but of being a supporter of missions. Towards the end of her life, when she didn't have an income because my grandfather already died, she's living on Social Security and would faithfully tithe 10% of her money, would faithfully give 10% to Annie, faithfully give 10% to Lottie. And we moved to Utah just a few months before she died, and she would always call me. She'd say, honey, tell me what the missionaries are doing. Tell me what I'm helping pay for. And she loved to hear stories of us buying Bibles for missionaries or chairs or helping pay rent or providing for a meal for a family or anything. She just loved it. She was the sweetest woman I've ever met in my life. Isn't that amazing? Those that came before us, what they were willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. We stand on their shoulders. Oh, yeah. We have missionaries all over the world because of the sacrifices they made. Yep. And she was a missionary to her community. So they owned an uh, 80-plus acre farm in North mm -hmm. Georgia. Two of the acres of that 80 was meant for a garden. Well, it was my grandfather, my grandmother, and three children, so they didn't need two acres worth of food to feed them. And the rest of the acreage was all for cattle or chickens or hogs or something. So if somebody in the community needed something, then they would pull it out of the garden or kill a cow or a pig or chickens or whatever was needed and take it to those people uh, in the community. So she functions as a missionary in her own community in that way. It's no wonder you grew up to be a missionary. Yeah, that, I guess it's just in my blood. Well, you were nurtured as a child through mission friends and through RAs. Tell me about that. Yeah, so grew up at First Baptist Taylor's in the northwestern part of South Carolina in Greenville County. I grew up in mission friends uh, at Taylor's. The church was very faithful when I was a child to always make sure kids were either in mission friends or then older in RAs and GAs. So mission friends, you know, grew up early childhood, early elementary school, uh, learning about missionaries doing Bible studies through Mission Friends, and then got to transition into RAs. As a boy, I was always excited about RAs because I thought, man, I get to be a royal ambassador for Christ, and I get to have a Christ-like concern for all people. I'm running through the, the pledge in my head here, even as we speak. 
Can you still remember it all? I can probably remember most of it. If you put me on the spot, I might botch it up a little bit. But uh, as a royal ambassador, I'll do my best to become a well-informed, responsible follower of Christ, to have Christ-like concern for all people. Honestly, this is where I get messed up. That's where I lose it. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. So I'm, I'm kind of maybe it's half. It's been a or, few years. Yeah, it's been a few years. Mission Friends and then RAs were really my early foundation into learning about missions. Thankfully, I had a pastor who was very interested in missions, so our pastor did his Doctor of Ministry degree at New Orleans, and his project was on something he called MOMED. It was Mobile Medical Missions uh, Development and Deployment. So he wanted to be able to have a medical missions team from our church anywhere in the world within 48 hours, if needed. And that was what he did his project on. And we had a couple of MDs, pediatricians, people like that, dentists in the church, because uh, it was a large church, who were very willing and able to not only go, but to help fund it. He was always talking about MOMED. I just remember it all the time. And uh, what age were you at that time? Elementary school, middle school. What an influence on your life. Yep. To have not only them teaching you through the missions organization, the pastor proclaimed the significance of right. the mission. Yep. And the pastor I grew up with, his name was Ernest Carswell. We had a returned IMB family from Brazil in the church. He was one of the physicians. So he was an MD in Brazil through the Foreign Mission Board at the time, now the IMB. Yeah. And Dr. Carswell would talk about uh, Dr. and Mrs. Burton all the time. Uh, these are, you know, our returned IMB missionaries, and they were kind of the face and the, the front of MOMED for the church. And you personally knew missionaries. Mm -hmm. Yep. How did you get to be a missionary? <laughs> so this is kind of a funny story. When I was a freshman in college, I started out as a business major because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So my first semester was a business major. My second semester, I felt the call to ministry. I went to talk to one of my professors, who was my Old Testament professor, and said, hey, what does it feel like to be called to ministry? How do I know if I'm called to ministry? And he said, well, you, I can't tell you what it's like. Everybody's is different. But he gave me a few categories here and there. I thought through all of them, prayed through it, and realized, okay, I can't do anything else. I have to do ministry. Well, the end of all that story is at North Greenville College then, University Now, where I went to, to, uh, for undergrad, we had a Christian ministry scholarship because Furman University used to be part of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And when they pulled out all the money that South Carolina was sending to Furman, and they then sent two Christian ministry scholarships for North Greenville, Anderson, and Charleston Southern for the three schools that are there. But you interview with a local pastor to get that scholarship. So this pastor does his whole interview with me. And I really need to look back and find out who this was because I'd love to call him and say, you were right. His last question was, what is the one thing in ministry you will never do? And he just sits back in his chair and he crosses his arms and he waits. And I immediately, without flinching, said, I will never be a missionary. Okay. Never. I will never be a missionary. And he leaned up in his chair and he put his finger almost up in my face and he said, that's exactly what God's going to call you to. And I thought, man, yeah. you are crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to go pastor a church or I'm going to be a professor. I will never be a missionary. That's a joke. Well, lo and behold, we spent six years in Utah as missionaries. So how did you get there? So when we first moved to Louisville in 2001, uh, this is a little bit of a backstory. We, we started attending a church where Kevin Ezell was the pastor, Highview Baptist Church in Louisville. We spent four years there. Kevin, for two of those four years, was a personal mentor to me. So when he moved to, and, and because of his time with me, just one-on-one, -on -one, he knew about my love for Mormonism. I started, started studying Mormonism in January of 1996. I just fell in love with it. It's just what God created me to do. So he knew about that love. He knew my love for 
doing missions in Utah. We started doing short-term mission trips in Utah in 2009 with students from Southern, where I was on faculty at the time, and other faculty would go with me occasionally. When Kevin moved to Nam in 2010 uh, and started the Sin City emphasis, he called me in 2012. Uh, I was on faculty at Southern, was very happy. He, uh, he called me and he said, hey, uh, I'm looking for somebody to be the city missionary for Salt Lake City. He said, I know you're involved in Mormonism, but I know you're connected at Southern. You won't want to do it. So can you suggest anybody to me? And I thought for a second, I said, well, I think I do know of somebody because I'd been going on all these mission trips and my heart had really been just demolished for Salt Lake City. I mean, I was just almost to the point of depression when I wasn't there. So I knew God was calling us there. In fact, every every summer I would go, I'd come back home and I would say to my wife, Stacy, I would say, God's calling us to Salt Lake City. And she'd say, no, he's not. Be quiet. Let's go to bed. <laughs> okay. Well, when the two become one, God calls both. He doesn't just call one. So every year I was doing that. Well, finally, 2012, the summer of 2012 comes around. I go on my last trip before Kevin calls me. And there were some wildfires on the on the southwestern mountains mm-hmm. outside of Salt Lake. And as we took off, we took off to the south and we turned to go back to the north. And as we turned, I look out of my window and it's a south wind that day. And I see the fires on the mountains. I see the smoke filling the Salt Lake Valley. And it was a visual picture to me of the city on fire and burning and on its way, busting the gates of hell wide open. And I'm on the plane and I just lost it crying. I couldn't hold it together. Uh, The person beside me probably thought I was having some kind of breakdown or something. But I got home that night. It was late, late on a Saturday night. And I promise all this will tie in. Got home and said to Stacy, I can't take it anymore. We have to move. We have to go. She said, whatever, I'm tired. Let's go to bed. Well, that was just kind of her way of saying, I'm tired. I want to talk about it. The next morning we go to church. We're at a different church then. Kevin had already moved on to Nam. So we're at a different church. And our pastor, who was a faithful expositor, faithfully working through books of the Bible, was that Sunday in Luke chapter 9. And part of that passage was Jesus saying, let the dead bury their own dead. Pick up your cross and follow me. He spent some time dealing with that. And for about 30 seconds in that dealing with that phrase, he said, sometimes we make our families into idols. And he quoted a few studies that say that about 80% of SBC pastors live within a couple hundred miles of their mothers-in-law, things like that. And as he's saying that, my wife starts to sob uncontrollably. And I thought, what in the world is happening? I didn't, I couldn't understand it. So she was the pianist at the church. So then she's got to try to dry her tears up and go play for the invitation. Uh, But we got in the car. She shut her door after church. I shut my door. And she looks at me and she says, and I'll never forget it. She says, call Nam, let's go. I said, now, Stacy, wait a minute. If we leave Southern, I mean, I'm getting ready to go up for tenure. I'm going up for rank promotion. Getting a teaching job in academics and evangelicalism is hard. Leaving one is just something you don't do because I'm not going to get another one. It's not going to happen. Call Nam. I'm convinced. Let's go. Now, at that point, it's 2012. We'd been married since 1999. So I had heard no for 12 years. So I said, okay, well, if you're convinced, I'll call Nam. So I I started contacting Nam, contacted the Utah-Idaho Southern Baptist Convention, thought we were going to go out and plant a church. That didn't work out. So we thought, well, maybe Utah's an idol and we won't go. Well, then here comes Kevin again. Late 2012, Kevin calls me 
And because he's a basketball fan, Kentucky basketball fan, he's got nothing to do during college football season. So it's a Saturday night. It's right in the middle of college football season. I'm watching Clemson, and Kevin calls me. I see his number pop up, and I thought, what's he doing calling me? He hadn't called me since he went to NAM. So, okay, whatever. We'll see what's happening. So I answer, and he tells me, you know, I've got this job in Salt Lake City. Here's what the job is. Do you know of anybody? And that's when I said, I think I do. You're talking to him. So that started the process. And then just a few months later, July of 2013, we moved and spent the next six years in Salt Lake. With some incredible stories. Oh, yeah. I have heard some of the stories that you and Stacy have shared with us personally and through our curriculum. Mm -hmm. What's one of the most moving stories you experienced? Oh, goodness. It was probably meeting a guy for the first time who'd been a missionary in a little town called Hooper, Utah, spelled H-O-O-P-R, like Hooper, Mm -hmm. but pronounced Hooper. Uh, His name's Larry Magruder. Larry at the time was in his early 70s, grew up Mormon, very Mormon. When he left the LDS church, not to become a Christian, but just left the LDS church, his wife divorced him. He lost everything, was homeless for uh, a number of weeks. Eventually, a local SBC deacon saw him on the street, shared Christ with him, and Larry got saved. Larry became a a Bible study leader in the church, became a leader in the church just overall, and then eventually goes out to Hooper, Utah to plant. Hooper's just on the east side of the Great Salt Lake, north of downtown Salt Lake City. We'd been there maybe a few weeks, and I'm trying to meet with all the guys who are missionaries in SBC circles. Endorsed or not, I want to meet you. I want to encourage you, whatever I can do. And we sat down at a little restaurant in Hooper, and I said, Larry, my name's Travis. I'm here representing the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. What can we do to help you? How can I encourage you? And Larry, at 70-plus years old, just started crying uncontrollably. I said, Larry, what, what's wrong? Are you okay? And he said, I didn't think anybody else out there cared. Didn't think there was anybody else out there. I thought we were all alone, isolated, completely by ourselves. And I didn't know anybody outside of Utah even knew who we were or cared about us at all. The Utah Southern Baptist Convention had been caring for him, but I was from outside of that coming in. I'll never forget him crying, saying, I, I didn't know anybody else cared. I didn't know anybody else knew who we were. And from there, Larry now is the pastor of, of a church called Wasatch Cowboy Church. Wasatch is just the name for the mountains on the east side of Salt Lake City. And Hooper had never had a Christian church ever in its existence, had never had an evangelical witness. But now, that was 2013, now in 2021, they have two acres of land right inside Hooper. Everybody there knows who he is. There's a building there, all because of the faithful gifts of Southern Baptists. We were able to give them grants to buy the land and grants to put up the building. And churches from Texas and other churches, a church from South Carolina came and helped put the building up. So now seeing Larry's church go from a few people in his living room to now having, on a good Sunday, 100 to 125 people worshiping the risen Christ in a place that had never known an evangelical witness. Probably the greatest story that I saw happen in Utah. But just, again, for Larry to say, I didn't know anybody else cared. And then for, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but then for Southern Baptist WMU groups to start realizing, hey, there are missionaries out in this foreign land called Utah And they start writing notes of encouragement and letters and praying and calling our missionaries for missionary families like Larry's to receive a letter in the mail from people they will never meet or a $25 gift card to Walmart from a church group they'll never meet or to receive a phone call from a church that they'll never meet in person. 
is like a huge shot in the arm and keeps them going for months at a time. As you were talking about Larry, I couldn't help think of your grandmother. Mm-hmm. She would have loved the story. Oh, she she and Larry would have gotten along <laughs> like nobody's business. She from North Georgia. Larry was from uh, from Arizona originally, uh, but very Western. Every time you see him, you think, "This is this John Wayne or is this a church planter? Who is this? But yeah, they would have gotten along phenomenally well. You talk about WMU groups doing stuff mm-hmm. for our missionaries. I can't let the interview go without you telling... The brownie cake mix story. <laughs> yep. So in uh, in 2017, we were part of the Missions Mosaic, or the Missions Material. Uh-huh. I think we're in Missions Mosaic as well. And the interviewer asked me what I like to do, so I told her. And then the interviewer asked Stacy, what do you like to do? And one of the things Stacy said is, I love to have people over and I love to cook for them. Because every week or every two weeks, we would have a missionary family in our house, or we'd have a Mormon couple in our home from our neighborhood. We just love having people over and cooking for them. And if they're believers, being able to encourage them. If they're unbelievers, being able to share the gospel with them. So, in fact, as a side note, Jeremiah, our son, who's now 15 but was 8 when we moved there, became the best evangelist in our family because of those mealtimes. So anytime we were going to pray before a meal, Jeremiah would whisper like an 8-year-old whispers in a normal, loud voice, Daddy, are these people Christians or are they Mormon? (laughs) To which the people sitting around the table could very easily hear him. And I would say either Jeremiah or Christian. If they're Christian, he would pray a very short, Jesus, thanks for the food. Let us have a good time in fellowship. If they're Mormon, our eight-year-old son would pray the gospel over the meal. So that's always fun to see how missionary kids work like that. Interviewer says to Stacy, what do you like to do? I love to cook. I love to bake. Well, what that turned into is it turned into WMU groups reading that material and beginning to send us cake mixes and brownie mixes and muffin mixes. It's predominantly cake mixes, and probably at the height of it, we had between six and 700 cake mixes in our pantry. We could have supplied our local Walmart with cake mixes. Now, the most interesting part about this is, is from the time the material was, the time the interview was done until the time of the material being published is we moved. So a lot of the cake mixes got sent to our old address. Well, we started getting text messages from our old neighbors. Hey, the people that bought your house want you to come and get the cake mixes. Please come and get them. Well, Stacy would go over there and she'd get boxes, you know, massive boxes of cake mixes. Probably boxes filled with 40 or 50 or 60 at a time. In fact, what was always funny is we would see the postage on the, on the front of the box would sometimes be 40 or $50 for $10 worth of cake mixes. And we kept thinking, just send us the gift card. We'll go buy the cake mixes. It'd be way cheaper. Anyway, so she goes over one time and the guy is there. Usually he would just sit it out on the front stoop and you just pick it up and go. He was there and he said, what are all these boxes you keep getting? And she said, well, you'd probably laugh at it, but it's cake mixes. And he said, oh, well, that's interesting because we're wedding cake bakers. That's what we do for a living. And this family's very Mormon. And she said, oh, well, I would give you some of these, but you probably don't use Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker. You probably come up with your own you know, cake base. He said, no, actually, we do use Duncan Hines and Betty Crocker. And she said, oh, well, why don't you just take this whole case of cake mixes? He said, okay, here's my next question. Why are you getting so many cake mixes in the mail? So Stacy was able to share Christ with this Mormon family because of cake mixes coming from WMU groups, <laughs> providentially going to the wrong address <laughs> to this family who's very not Christian. Only God can work out. Only God can work that out with cake mixes. Yep. So cake mixes in the gospel. I, I never get, you can tell me that story every day. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah, we keep a picture of all the cake mixes uh, that we took when our pantry uh, was just nearly half full. 
How many do you think you got overall? It had to be above a thousand easily. <laughs> I mean, every for probably a month, maybe six weeks, every day or every other day in the mail was a box of cake mixes, and it could be anywhere from ten to thirty or forty. And now you're on the campus of Southwestern Seminary, right? Teaching students. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you got here. So Dr. Greenway and I met 2004. We started PhD work together at Southern uh, in Louisville. One thing that we always talked about was hoping to go on a faculty somewhere together. Uh, All PhD students want to teach, right? That's just kind of your thing. The vast majority don't get to. But we always said, man, we want to go on a faculty together. We want to teach together. Thankfully, we're able to do that at Southern for a while. We taught together. He was teaching in the Billy Graham School, and I was teaching at Boyce College, the undergraduate level. But when we left to go to Utah, he and I kept conversing through the years and kept saying, hey, you know, if if you ever go somewhere as a provost or a dean or a president, I want to come with you. And then the same for me. If I go somewhere, I want you to come with me because we think alike in terms of evangelism, missiology, apologetic methodology, all those things. We're kind of in lockstep. So he contacted me in 2018 told me he was at the, in the front runner's position for the job here, for the presidency here. I thought, man, I, I don't want to leave Utah with the Rocky Mountains as my backyard to go to Texas. I mean, this is going to have to be a God thing. So he called me and he said, hey, I, I might be going as president. If I do, I'd love for you to come. I said, okay, I'll pray about it. I'll ask Stacy about it. I told Stacy, and she said, oh, we can't move again. Because when we moved to our final house in Utah that we sold to come here, that was our 10th move in 20 years of marriage. I said, we were done with moving. So the move down here was 11. So we just, Dr. Greenway and I kept talking, and Stacy and I felt called to come down here. And what was interesting is in our fifth year of overseeing, our sixth year, rather, of overseeing planting in Utah for NAM in Salt Lake City, and also worked alongside a pastor in Idaho to oversee planting in the rest of Utah and all of Idaho for the Utah-Idaho State Convention. We didn't really see any real traction happen in our sixth year. So we started to think, okay, God, maybe you're calling us to something else. So we came down here because of a calling to come here, and we've loved every minute of it. The last 20 or so months have just been better than I could have ever imagined. And planting in Utah is taking off again. And there's traction being gained. So it's like God was saying, I'm done with you here. Now I want you to go there. And it's been just a phenomenal thing ever since. So my, my transition here was from being a PhD student with Dr. Greenway, knowing him and knowing that we track alongside each other and getting to come here and train students to go out in the world. There's nothing better. It doesn't get any, doesn't get any better. No. I want you to think about your grandmother. Mm-hmm. A lot of people listening, but have her in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. What would you tell to your grandmother? What would, what would you say to her? Say it to all those that are listening. Yeah, the first thing I would say is thank you. Thank you for praying. Again, I may get emotional here. The prayers that we felt, even though we never saw physical manifestations of cards or letters or anything like that, but the prayers we felt of WMU groups and of church groups across North America and around the world, it's what kept us going. That, that's, all, that's the only way I know to say it. But then physical manifestations of it in cards, in letters, in one WMU group sent us a quilt. Thank you for praying. Thank you for sending cards. Obviously, thank you for being faithful in your giving. Our family ate for six years because of Annie Armstrong, because of sacrifices by people just like my grandmother. And I'm sure many of your listeners are just sacrificially giving out of nothing to make sure that our missionaries have the full support that they need. 
So thank you for praying. Thank you for giving. And thank you for being supportive. Thank you for loving on missionaries. Thank you for training future generations through missions training material. Thank you for loving missions. I would say all those things to her. And I did in the months we were in Utah before she died. And I would probably say, and I just beg you to keep praying and keep sending cards. Keep, keep being as, as encouraging as you can. Keep sacrificing and giving. I know it's a sacrificial gift. I know just because I was the guy for Salt Lake City that oversaw the stewardship of Annie Armstrong gifts. And we were very, very serious. So one thing I do, I showed you a picture earlier, uh, Sandy, of my grandmother, me and my grandmother mm-hmm. in North Georgia. The planters there, the missionaries there got sick of seeing that picture because every time they would ask me for money, I would show them that picture. And I would say, this is my 83-year-old grandmother when she died in North Georgia. Her name was Betty. This is Betty's money that you're asking for. Could you ask her, if she were standing in front of you, could you ask her for the money? Don't ask me, ask her. If the missionary at all hesitated, I would say we're not funding it. We're not going to touch it. But if the missionary said, I could absolutely ask her for the money, I could do so with complete uh, transparency, being completely above board, I would say, here's what we're going to do with it, and I can show you receipts to the penny, I would say, we'll do it all day long. No questions asked. So I would say thank you for supporting missionaries through prayer, through giving. But the other thing I would say is thank you for being a support to your church staff to your lay leaders in your church, to other people in your church. My grandmother was just as supportive as she could be of her pastor, of the other staff members, of other people in the church, the lay leaders in the church. She just loved supporting them. So thanks for your support of missionaries. Thanks for your support of other people in your church. And then I know this is this shouldn't be last. It should be first, but it's the last thing that came to my mind. Thank you for, for loving Jesus enough to share Jesus with me. And I would say that to anybody listening, my prayer is that you would love Jesus enough so that you might share Jesus with somebody who doesn't know Christ because you love them in the same way somebody loved you enough to share Jesus with you. And the the biggest piece of advice I would give about sharing Christ is what our professor here, uh, Dr. Matt Queen, says. He's our associate professor of evangelism. He says, if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to share it. So just share God's words and you can never go wrong. Well, it's not hard to love our missionaries. We love you and Stacy and your family dearly. We're proud of you, and we just can't wait to see what God is going to do with the next season of your life. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Thank you for spending time with me. Oh, yeah, anytime. I'm a huge fan of WMU and sing the, the songs of praise everywhere I go. Well, thank you, Travis. All right, let's get to dinner. Let's go. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Journey Conversations. You heard how Travis's life was influenced by missions discipleship as a preschooler and a child. This September, WMU is launching Missions Journey Kids. It is a missions discipleship curriculum for children in grades 1 through 6. Focusing on missions work both here in the United States and throughout the world, Mission Journey Kids will captivate your children's minds and hearts as they learn about different avenues Christians use to share the gospel with the nations. We need to raise up the next generation of missionaries. Thanks for listening. See you next time.